if you would, let's go ahead and open our Bibles up to Ephesians 6, and we're going to start in verse 10. I want to read through verse 17 just to keep us on track, and then we'll dissect the helmet of salvation. I won't bore you with a recap of all the armor, because I've done that every time that I've taught this throughout the, throughout the armor. I didn't want to leave anybody behind if they had if they missed a message or something like that. But by now, you ought to, so everybody ought to have at least heard a little bit of it. But I think it's important to reread at least the context, and so we'll start in verse 10 and uh, go to verse 17. And also, I'm not going to deal with the sword of the Spirit today. One, because I'm not prepared, and two, because I don't think I have enough time. So uh, this is going to take all, uh, all the time i got. But starting in verse 10, it says, Finally be strengthened by the Lord and by His vast strength. Put on the full armor of the Almighty so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. This is why you must take up the full armor of the Almighty, so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take the shield of faith, and with it you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is Yahweh's word. Now we know why we're talking about the armor of Yahweh. We have been over that several times, right? We're engaged in a spiritual warfare, whether we like it or not. Satan is on us. He's coming to get us. Satan's he's on the loose. And we've got to be ready. Him and all of his cohorts are out there, and we must stand committed and protect ourselves from their evil schemes, their wily ways, and we have to do that at all times. Mm-hmm. Now, we're already committed. We got that in verse 14. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We're doing our best to live our holy lives, just as the Bible teaches. We have our feet shod with the gospel of peace, like it says in verse 15. And as we discussed last time, we know to pick up the shield of faith as needed. When the battle rages on, it's time to pick up the shield of faith. So going into verse 17, we're also going to take the helmet of salvation. Keep in mind, the verb here is just like it was in verse 16. Okay, We're not walking around with the helmet on all the time, just like we're not walking around with the shield of faith all the time. We're, we're just, you know, People didn't walk around with helmets on. Even the Roman soldiers, they didn't wear them just in, in, in daily interaction. But rather... It is sometimes when something gets bad or when the battle rages on, we reach out and we grab that shield of faith. And it's the same way with the helmet of salvation here. We're going to pick up that faith when the, I mean, pick up that helmet when the battle rages on. So um, I told you that the verb changed here in the Greek and we went from something that we wear all the time, like the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of, God, of the gospel to something that you use as needed, like the shield of faith. So the helmet of salvation is to be viewed in the same light. When the battle gets fierce and we grab that shield and we grab that helmet, let's talk a little bit about that helmet. What did a Roman helmet look like? I want you to keep in mind Paul is still looking at a Roman soldier. And so that's what we're comparing this to in efforts to understand in context. Okay. With that, with that in mind, let me ask you this for just a second. Paul doesn't mention a Roman soldier in the context, right? How is it that we know that we're pulling the analogy from a Roman soldier? Well, you know that because I told you that a long time ago. But how is it that we know that? Um, 
I know that because I learned it from other scholars and from studying things like that. You don't you don't always come up with these things on your own. Sometimes you get a nugget, you're you're reading along and and uh those kind of things just pop out at you and you're like, Oh man, look what I just figured out. I figured out something I've never heard anybody teach before. But most of the time, if you teach the scriptures, you have studied under other people who taught these these sermons, you know, time and time again or other theologians that view it this way or commentaries that view it this way. And that's the way you learn most of this stuff. But you but you may know that we're looking at a Roman soldier because I mentioned that at the beginning of this of this passage of are these series of lessons that I talked about the armor. But how do you really know that? We also know this because there's no Israelite soldiers around right here. These he's he's in he's he's under Roman authority right here. Romans are Romans are standing all around him and I believe that's why we know that he's looking at a Roman soldier and that's where he's drawing this analogy from as he points out these pieces of armor. If we didn't know this and we had some other soldiers attire in view, most of these pieces of armor wouldn't even make sense because not all soldiers wore the same kind of attire. From from place to place, from people to people, from culture to culture, they weren't all the same. But we can go back through this attire and we can look at the Greek wording and things like that and we can see that this is Greek attire that he has on or Roman attire that he has on because of the wording. So, so we can back back into that and we can understand all that. My point is this, I say all that to make this point, that it is incredibly important that we do in-depth Bible study. We don't want to take the time to read a book in the Bible and not get out of it what's intended to be received. And I thought it necessary to make that point or to bring that out because I was speaking to someone just the other day and they told me that they thought the Bible was really great. They thought it was real great. They were a believer, but they kind of viewed the Bible as a book that that could be understood in many different ways, depending on how the reader interpreted it. I'm sure that you have heard these kind of talked to these kind of people before. But I told him that I thought the Bible was really black and white. It was real black and white, and uh, I think that everything written in the Bible um, only had one meaning or one understanding, at least when it was written. And I am of the persuasion that the reason we have so many different interpretations is because we're so far removed from the culture of the Bible. And because of this, when a passage doesn't completely explain itself or it's not cut and dry, black and white, then we insert our culture into the context trying to reconcile its meaning. And when we do that, we lose the meaning of what was intended right there. And we come up with all kind of doctrines and all kind of understandings that later on will not fit in the rest of the Bible because we have inserted something in there that doesn't belong. So the reason for me to bring this up is because, one, the way that we understand this is by understanding looking at a Roman soldier. That's the way I'm getting all of this. That's that's the way all this is coming to fruition. And as this unfolds and as this unpacks, it, it is beautiful how Yahweh took all this stuff and compared the physical soldier to a spiritual man that's in battle all the time. It's pretty neat. But when we when we add to or take away from something that is automatically there, we end up with gray areas, things that we don't understand, and then we start to interpret things the way that we want to interpret them. This passage here is one that may be considered gray itself because of our understanding of salvation. There's a lot of ways that you could take this, the helmet of salvation passage right here. But but because we already have a Roman soldier in view and what's going on right there, the, the defense of satan, satanic influence 
with the spiritual garments of the of the Roman Roman soldier, you know, physical to spiritual, I think we can understand it black and white. But I'll get to that in a minute. I don't want to get ahead of myself. I just want, I want to get back to the helmet right now. But I wanted to at least say that. What did the Roman helmet Roman soldier's helmet look like? A Roman soldier would have wouldn't go into battle without a helmet. It would be silly to go into battle without a helmet. Now helmets were made basically of two things. One was made of leather and would have metal patches on it, things like that. They would do that to kind of ensure the integrity of the helmet. And then the second one was probably a molded or cast helmet. You've seen them in the movies with the plumes on them that kind of covered their ears and may have, may have an eagle or something on the top of the helmet, things like that. The kind of helmet that you would have wore was determined by a few things. Uh, one would have been the time you wear it. So when, we're, when we read about it, the, the time, the century or time frame that they lived in, that may have determined the style of helmet that they would have wore. And the other thing would have been the regiment that you were in or what function that you served in the military, whether you were a captain or a soldier or man on the front line or whether or not you shot bows and arrows or fought with a sword and things like that. Now this helmet is obviously obviously served a function of protecting the head, but from what? Possibly flying arrows. We talked about that last time, but primarily from what what we would call the broadsword. That's what it was intended for. Okay. Last time we talked, I mentioned the makaira. The Greek word makaira meant like a short dagger. You know, a small dagger that a that a foot soldier would have wore carrying a small shield, maybe a 18, 20 inch shield that he would have to be super mobile with. He would have a short dagger and that's what he would fight with. But this is a, this is a broadsword and it's different. It's about three to four foot long and it had a massive handle that would, that you'd probably hold with both hands. Unless you were Goliath, maybe he might have handled it with one hand, but most people would have held it with both hands and, and, um, you'd kind of swing it like a baseball bat. Maybe you, over top of your head or either side to side, but you would swing it with both hands, kind of like a baseball bat. And uh, you just went around lifting this thing up over your head and swinging it around, I guess trying to create split personalities or something to that effect. Uh, I'm not sure. But uh, most of the people who carried these were not foot soldiers. Most of them were mounted on horseback. And um, they would carry these swords and swing them from the top of a horse. So this sword was a very destructive weapon, <clears throat> and the helmet was designed to deflect the bow, the blow from the sword. <clears throat> so the analogy that Paul gives us about this protective helmet is that it's the helmet of salvation. It means it's a helmet that saves you. It's a helmet that saves you. Well, guess what? Despite all of what you read and all of what you think, this is not a reference to being saved. It's not a reference to being saved. So when we read the helmet of salvation, it's, it's, that's not what it means. Paul's not saying, now that you're in the army, and now that you're fighting Satan, and now that you've got the breast piece of, breastplate of righteousness on, and now that you've got your gospel shoes on, and now that you have the shield of faith on, go get saved. That's not what he's talking about. It doesn't work that way. That's already happened. You see, you were saved back in chapter 2. In fact, we've been saved for about four chapters now. And uh, our case, as long as it's taken me to go through four chapters, you all have been saved for about two years. Congratulations. Congratulations. But seriously, you wouldn't even be in the army if salvation had not, had not occurred. If you're fighting Satan at all, you've, you've already been on Yahweh's side. So the helmet of salvation is not about getting saved. So what does it mean? Well, get your pencil and paper out. I'm going to give you a little theology about salvation. How many people in here have ever been asked, do you believe in once saved, always saved? 
I mean, question time and time and time again. I've gotten this question hundreds and hundreds of times. And I was raised for most of my life in a Baptist church, and this is a common phrase that is used by people from the Baptist church. Well, as I have heard this question throughout my time, I've often attempted to answer it, but usually I get interrupted about three sentences in, and I get the rhetorical, I mean the, the common rebuttal that goes something like this. Well, what about my aunt? She went to church for 20 years, and the next thing you know, she turned, turned off into drugs, and, and uh, she fell away from church. But I was there when she went down to that altar and said that prayer, and bless God, she's saved. I know she is. She's got to be. And um, some might even say this, I witnessed the gift of the Holy Spirit on this person or on that person. I saw them talking in tongues. I seen them, you know, profess Christ. I've, I've seen them. I've seen them use the gift of tongues, and you know that you have to have the Holy Spirit in order to be able to speak in tongues. Well, that's hogwash, guys. Most of that stuff's just an act. Most of that stuff's just an act. Even still, people are concerned about these things. People in their own lives are concerned about these things. They worry that they have sinned and they question their own salvation. This is also true with young people. If you ask a young person, do they serve the creator of heaven and earth? Have they committed their life to the Messiah? You know, I'm talking about young people. I'm talking about teenage people that have been at youth groups and youth camps and been to Sunday school and things like that. They're 13, 14, 15 years old. You ask them, are you in service to Yahweh? Do you, you know, is, is Christ your savior? Do you follow him? Do you, do you walk after him? And they, or you ask them if they've, if they've been saved, they might say, yeah, I've been saved. This makes the twelfth time, and I got saved again this morning. That's 13. I've been baptized all 13 times. Folks, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. But it seems it stems from a lack of understanding of salvation and how salvation actually works. So I'm going to do my best to explain salvation and the way it works to you. And I'll begin by saying this. If we don't understand this, we're not going to understand a lot of things about the Bible. Unfortunately, I didn't understand this for years and years and years and years and years. And for that reason, I never, I never could understand the questions of once saved, always saved, or how predestination works, or how that kind of stuff works, because I didn't understand the process of salvation. <clears throat> so it's important that we get this concept. So if you got your pencil and paper and you want to take notes, it's, that's fine. I thought it, I thought it, I thought it neat. Um, maybe you will the same, but. So first, there's three aspects to salvation, okay? There's a past, a present, and a future. These three aspects can be defined in three different ways. Number one, past. This aspect frees us from the penalty of sin. So freedom from the penalty of sin. Let me explain. If you asked me if I was saved, if I'm, if I'm saved, my answer would obviously be yes. I would tell you that I'm saved, okay? If you say to me, when did it happen, being a little bit facetious, I would say from the foundation of the world, okay, or from the foundation of Yahweh's plan. Mm -hmm. But from a physical standpoint, I would say that I'm not exactly sure when I was saved. I don't know. I'd probably say somewhere around my early 20s. And um, I just asked Yahweh to save my soul. I recognized that I was lost, that I was a sinner, and that I was filthy, and I was dirty before him. I felt ashamed of my sin, and I didn't want the burden of that on my shoulders anymore. So I cried out to Yahweh, and I begged him for his forgiveness, and I asked him to guide me through life in a way of righteousness. Okay? Amen. I didn't, uh, 
At this point, I believed, and according to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, that I was sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I believed. I believed in the gospel of my salvation at that point. And I believe that Yahweh saved me. All right? Or as Matthew taught the other day, I believe right there I was given the earnest of the Spirit. He started to work in me. I became part of the new covenant, if you will. My sin was placed upon our Messiah. And when he was nailed to a tree, so was my sin. He paid the penalty for my sin. And that's all in the past. The penalty has been paid. The old man died. I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. That's Galatians 2 and verse 20. When you put your faith in Yeshua, you died with him, only to be resurrected in the future. Sin has been dealt with. There's no more penalty to pay. Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ. I hope you see that. That is the past aspect of salvation. It's the freedom from the penalty of sin. Guys, I didn't I didn't walk down to any altar, no man-made podium. I didn't stand before something like that. Yeah. I didn't say any certain prayer. Yeah. I didn't follow along behind a preacher. Yeah. Not that that's wrong. I'm not saying that you can't do that. I'm just saying that's not what happened to me. I believe I'm just as saved as any man. Sure. But all I did was give it all up. I, I give it all up. I fell on my face, and I begged Yahweh to save my soul. Now, there's a present aspect of salvation, which is number two, if you want to write that down. And it's the freedom from the power of sin. This means that as long as we abide in Him, sin has no dominion over us. Like 1 John says, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John's talking to believers. These are people that sin continually. They wouldn't even be talking to Yahweh to confess their sins if they weren't believers. Okay? And folks, this is ongoing because as long as you live, you'll continue to sin. You will always struggle with the flesh. It's not going away. You're going to break the commandments of Yahweh. But as long as you abide in Yeshua, He is faithful to forgive us. If you remember last time I talked, we went over Romans in chapter 8 and verse 33 which says, who can bring an accusation against Yahweh's elect? Obviously, the question is rhetorical. The answer is no one. There can be no condemnation brought against someone who has been spared by Yahweh. So in this part of salvation, we are being saved. Paul illustrates this beautifully in Romans chapter 7 when he discusses the war between the flesh and the spiritual man. You can check that out in your own time, but just as an appetizer in Romans chapter 17 and verses 19 through 20, He says, For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I'm no longer the one doing it, but it's the sin that lives within me. Folks, Paul was a saint, but he still battled with the sin in his flesh. He desired to do right, but he still needed to be cleansed on a daily basis. He still needed to repent. He still needed to confess his sins. So we are being saved now continually through Yeshua's ministry as our high priest. Remember Matthew's sermon on the, on the new covenant. Don't forget that this is not complete. We are somewhere in the middle of this covenant. Somewhere in the middle of the new covenant. We have, we have been forgiven. It has begun, but it is not complete. We are constantly being forgiven. That's number two. Number three, the third aspect of salvation is we will be saved from the presence of sin. So freedom from the presence of sin. In the past, we were saved from the penalty of sin. In the present, we are saved from the power of sin. 
and in the future we will be saved from the presence of sin. Mm. Guys, there's coming a day where there'll be no more sin. Mm. That day is coming. When the new covenant comes to fruition, there will be no sin at all. And at that point, salvation will be complete. In 1 John chapter 3, it says that we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. Yeshua is spotless. He is blameless. He is pure. He is sinless. We're going to be just like He is. We'll understand Him. We'll see Him as He is. Yeshua is is incredibly blameless. This is a future prophecy, and we will be as He is without sin and without the presence of sin. The sin will be done away with. We can't sin at that point. Listen to me here. Salvation has happened. It is happening, and it will happen. Has happened is the past. That's our justification. All right? Is happening is the present. That is sanctification. And will happen is the future. And that is glorification. Mm-hmm. Now check this out. This is the golden chain of redemption, or at least the golden chain of redemption in part. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 30, Paul says, Those, he, those who he predestined, he also called. Yes. Those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Now, if it is past, it is done. And if it is also present, then you can't lose it. Okay? Because it's continually going on, and if it is guaranteed in the future, then you're eternally secure. This is the understanding of salvation. And so when you think about salvation, don't just think of it as in terms of the past, something that you did a long time ago. Not a prayer that you prayed or an altar that you kneeled down before one time in your life that you you know prayed to Yahweh don't think of it like that and don't think of it in terms of the future some churches teach that some religions teach that that salvation only comes in the future but don't don't think of it in terms of the future something that is to come but think about it and understand it in all three elements past present and future This will eliminate a lot of doubts and concerns about your salvation. I hope everyone's grasping this because it's important to understand and it's real important to understand the helmet of salvation. Let me illustrate this by having you turn to Romans 8 real quick. And uh, let's start in verse 22. And while you're you're turning there, I'll tell you kind of what's going on in Romans 8. Paul's talking about the curse here in Romans 8. He's talking about how sin has affected the whole world and how the world is doomed for destruction. However, there's something that's going to make it all better. And I hope everybody knows that the world is going to get better. It's just going to take the Messiah's return to do it. Um, You know the world's going to get better and it's going to take him to do it. Man's not going to fix this fallen world. Um, It doesn't matter who you elect. It doesn't matter how many criminals you get off the street. It doesn't matter how many people you get off drugs. And it doesn't matter how many people get saved. All those things may impact something, but none of them are going to fix it like the Messiah is going to fix it when he gets here. Okay, we can see some improvement, but it's not going to—it's not going to change everything. Romans chapter eight and verse twenty-two it says this: For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Stop right there. It's been going on since the fall of Adam and Eve. The whole world. Not only the not only the creation groaning, or the whole world has been has been groaning since Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve's fall, and that's all of Yahweh's creation is affected by sin. 
Let's read verse 23. It says, And not only that, not only the creation groaning, but we ourselves who have the Spirit, that is Yahweh's Spirit, as the firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. What is Paul saying? This is what he's saying. The world, even the whole world, the things in it that don't know Yahweh cry out because of the curse of sin. But even us, the saints, the children of Yahweh, groan within ourselves. Even though we are his children, we still groan because of the curse of sin. We still struggle with it and battle our flesh that is tempted by Satan every single day. However, we eagerly wait for the adoption, that is the redemption of our bodies. Folks, that last part is the resurrection of our bodies. Amen. We eagerly await for the dis the displacement of sin and the redemption of our bodies into the eternal glory with him. Amen. That is our eternal hope. That's the hope that we have. This lines up with 1 Corinthians 15. You can check that out in your own reading sometimes. Uh, verses 12 through 28. But the finality of the kingdom is the freedom of the presence of sin. That is our, that is our hope. This is what verse 24 is talking about in Romans chapter 8. If we keep reading, it says, Now in or by this hope, by is a better translation. Now by this hope we were saved. What hope? The hope of redemption. The hope of resurrection. The hope of Yahweh's kingdom to come. That's what hope. Folks, this is the helmet of salvation. The hope of salvation to come to completion. That is the helmet of salvation. How would you like it if you didn't have any hope at all? What if someone told you, I want you to run this race for me. And you get out here and you line up on the starting line and you got your running shoes on and you get out here and you line up on this line and you look over at this guy before, beside you and you say, you ready to run this race? And he goes, I don't know. Did you hear what kind of race this was? And he, you think, no, nah, I don't know what kind of race it is. Somebody just asked me to run it and I got my shoes on. He said, well, it's fun, but um, it never stops. You just start, but there's never an end. There's never a finish line. You just run. Once you get started, you never stop. Who wants to run a race like that? That's ridiculous, right? We're looking for a finish line. We're looking for a place that stops. Or what if, What about a battle? We're all in a battle, right? What about a battle? Somebody says, hey, put on all your armor. Let's go out to battle. But before you get started, just know this, that it never stops. There's never a victor. There's never a victory. You're never going to stop fighting. You're going to start fighting today, and it never ends. Who wants part of that? I don't want a part of that. I don't want part of that battle. We're already in that battle. We already fight Satan every day. We already fight temptation every day. We already have all that stuff going on. I'm already part of the army. I'm already part of Yahweh's army. I don't want, I don't want that battle to never end. I already belong to Yahweh. Our penalty has been paid. We're in the fight. But good Lord, someday, someday it's got to come to an end. And that's the hope that we have in our salvation. That's what Paul's talking about. Someday the battle will be over with. Someday the struggle of sin will be gone, or the struggle with sin will be gone. Someday we'll know the hope of full righteousness. Look at um, 1 Peter 1 real quick. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read if you don't want to turn there. But In 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Yeshua the Messiah, to the temporary residents of the dispersion in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Almighty, the Father, and set apart by the Spirit for obedience and for the sprinkling with the blood of Yeshua the Messiah. May grace and peace be supplied, multiplied to you, 
Blessings, blessed be the Almighty and Father of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, according to his great mercy. He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Yeshua from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the Almighty's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in this last time. What a benediction, huh? Do you see the hope here? There's a finish line. There'll be an end. People listen to me. That's exactly what the helmet of salvation is here. It's the hope of ultimate salvation. Listen to this real quick. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, it says, But since we are of the day, meaning children of light, Yahweh's children, Satan's dominion is the dominion of night. He would he would the children his children be called the children of darkness. But it says, But since we are of the day, we must be sober and put the armor of faith and love on our chest and put on a helmet of hope of the hope of salvation. For Yahweh did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. See, saints, one day this all comes to an end. We have an element of salvation that is still to come. The writer of Hebrews says the hope is the anchor of the soul. This hope is the anchor of the soul. So what is the helmet of salvation then? Back to Ephesians chapter 6 and 17. The helmet of salvation is confidence in full, in a full, final, total salvation to come, or as Matthew preached the other week, the new covenant to become complete. It's confidence in knowing that one day a battle will be over. I'm not sure about you, but I don't want to go through life battling Satan every day of my life. Not to have any kind of hope in a resurrection of eternal glory. I don't want to battle him every day. It's not easy, saints. It's it's hard to get up and to face him every day. To know that sometime during the day he's going to make it rough on you. I don't want to do that without some kind of hope in an eternal life. There has to be a finish line somewhere. Now you ask, well, TJ, how is this part of the armor? Well, you know that uh, we've been talking about how Satan tempts us and how how this is a spiritual battle against Satan and his cohorts and all that kind of stuff. And we're wearing this armor specifically because Satan battles with us every single day. Every piece of armor has had some way to defend him. All right? Well, that big old broadsword that I was talking about at the beginning of the sermon, well, Satan swings one of those. Okay? And uh, it's a two-edged sword. And on... On both sides of that sword, it can be sharpened with all kind of things because Satan is very divisive. But I picked two things to talk about today that I think that Satan may may swing at you throughout your life. Mm. On one side of that sword, I believe it's sharpened with doubt. Mm. And the other side of that sword, I believe it's sharpened with discouragement. Mm. And I believe that he wants to split your head wide open with it either side, whichever one or maybe both. So um, I want to talk to you a little bit about discouragement for a minute. And, and how this takes place in life. So here you are living the Christian life, and uh, you're setting yourself apart from the world. Boy, you really got it going. You're doing everything right. You're keeping the commandments. You're going to church every time the doors are open, keeping the feast, sharing the gospel, really doing well, or doing what you think is good. And what happens? You lose your job. Great blessing, huh? You're reading over there in your Bible every day like you're supposed to. You get up every morning, you read your Bible, and you do all that you're supposed to do, and next thing you know, you find out that your spouse is cheating on you. Mm. And you think, man, what is Yahweh doing for me? You've been in church for 20 years, but your kids are just as disobedient as they 
were before you started. They don't have any more respect for you now than they did when you started going to church. And the next thing you know, everything is just falling apart all the time, all the time. It seems like nothing goes your way. A year and a half ago, I was going to church every time the door was open. I was sitting in a pew. I was doing all that I knew to do to keep Yahweh's Torah, to walk in His ways, to keep His commands. I kept all the feast days. I witnessed to people. I did everything that I knew to do to live a righteous and holy life. I go to the doctor one day and I find out that I've got cancer. Okay, I'm diagnosed with cancer. You think, why? Why me? Why me? I feel like I'm doing it all right. I'm doing, I'm doing, I know people out there that don't do anything for Yahweh. You know? And I and I, maybe I don't get it all right, but at least I'm trying. I'm doing something all the time, you know. And then and then you and then it seems like something like that hits you. So what? Job was righteous. Yes, right. Job was righteous, right. a righteous man, and Yahweh took it all from him. He let Satan take it all from him. Can you imagine what Job felt like? You don't have to imagine. There's 42 chapters written about it in the Bible. You can go read about it. It was horrendous. It was absolutely. It's absolutely horrendous what Satan did to Job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, folks, we're saints just like Job. We're saints just like Job. Satan's going to attack us too. And guess what? You're going to need that helmet of salvation. Mm-hmm. You're going to need to put it on. There's coming a time where you're going to have to put it on. It may not be today. You may not need that shield and you may not be that, need that helmet today, but there's coming a time when you're going to need to put that helmet on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, th- I don't, I don't want to battle Satan without it. And I don't think you do either. So let's talk about the other side of that sword. What about doubt? What does that look like? Hey, I don't know about you, but have you ever had thoughts like this? You think to yourself, well, am I really am I really a Christian? Am I sure that I'm really saved? You know, you ever you ever think about that? Maybe I'm the only one that ever does that, but I've sat I've sat in my closet and think, Man, I don't know if I'm saved or not. Doubt is something that is big, and I believe that we all struggle with it. Thomas suffered with it really bad. He didn't even believe that the Messiah was resurrected. They taught him doubt in Thomas. In the circles that we run in, there are tons of Bible students that are educated and well-learned. But there are also tons of people who are educated in false doctrines. And in so many ways, these false doctrines create doubt as well. They'll create doubt in what you believe. They'll cause you to question everything you know and you'll start to lose faith. I questioned everything I knew at one time when I started to, to believe the way I believe now. I questioned everything because I thought everything I'd ever been taught was wrong. And that wasn't true. Yeah. That wasn't true. You can't lose faith in all things. We, right. can, we can search things out and see. But, but um, we'll question our faith as we go through life. And, and I believe that that's just Satan. He's swinging that old sword at you. He's causing you to doubt things that you know is true. Hold on to those things that are fast. Amen. In so many ways, these false doctrines, they create that doubt as well and, and uh, cause you to question things, but that's just Satan. Satan trying to get at us. Brothers and sisters, I could go on and on and on about people who suffer from discouragement and doubt throughout the Scriptures for crying out loud. It was all of them. It was every hero and every prophet that you read about in the scriptures. They were all persecuted. They all suffered. They all doubted and they all were discouraged. I almost believe that persecution is a requirement in order to be one of Yahweh's children in his sake. Okay, I believe that that's part of it. How would you like to be Jeremiah? Yahweh tells Jeremiah, he says, Hey, look, Jeremiah, I want you to spend your whole life 
warning my children <laughs> about what they're doing wrong, about how I'm going to destroy them if they don't turn about, turn from their wicked ways. I'm going to send them off into a nation and cause them to be slaves and things like that. Oh, and by the way, Jeremiah, before you start talking, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, won't none of them listen to you. They're never, ever going to listen to you. How about Hosea? He went as far as he had to marry a harlot for, for the sake of Yahweh. Or Elijah. He doubted Yahweh so much that he hid under a juniper tree and wanted to die after killing 450 prophets of Baal. He was scared to death of Jezebel. And even though Yahweh just performed a big old miracle on the mountain for him, Elijah went up on the mountain, you know, against the 450 prophets of Baal. They were going to make both make sacrifices. Yahweh comes down and lights Elijah's sacrifice, consumes everything that's there, licks up the water all the way around it, does all this in the eyes of all the people. And Elijah says, all of y'all start serving Yahweh today. And they all said that they would. All right. He kills the 450 prophets of Baal and Jezebel tells them the next day, he says, she says, as sure as you kill them today, you're, you'll be just as dead as they are by this time tomorrow. What happens to Elijah? He told all of them to have faith and stay, but Elijah checks out. He's gone. You think he doubted Yahweh? Sure he did. Sure he did. That happens. That happens. That's Satan working on you. It happens to all of us. Okay. The list goes on and on. Folks, this is not time to lay down. It's the time to get committed. It's the time to stand. Galatians 6 and 9 says, So we must not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. I ask you today, are you committed? Are you in it for the long haul? Saints, our reward will come at the resurrection. We don't want our reward right now. You don't want it. You don't want what the flesh desires. That's not the reward you want. We want our reward at the resurrection. That's what we're holding out for. We read we read that on Sabbath, Matthew chapter 6. And we want our reward to be eternal. So don't give up. Put on the helmet of salvation and cling to the hope of the eternal security that we were promised so many times throughout the Scripture. I'll close with this. At the end of Paul's life, he wrote this, and I feel like it's fitting for this sermon. It's probably become one of my favorite verses. I I guess i got a few of them too. Maybe not as many as Matthew, but I've got a few. So. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7 and following, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. In the future there is reserved for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. Yes. And not only me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Yes. Brothers and sisters, can you say that? Can you say that I am fighting the good fight? I am in the race and I'm running. We're in the middle of this right now. We have not reached the finish line. We haven't got to the end yet. We're just in the race. We're just fighting the good fight. Can you say that? One of these days, life's going to end for us and we're going to, we're going to have to, we can say this or we cannot say this. But, but will you be able to say that? Saints, let's fight the good fight. Let's run the race. Let's run the race with the attempt to win it. And, and one day this will all be over with. This is the hope that we have. This is what we rest in. We are resting in the hope, the hope of our salvation, the helmet of salvation. That's what it is. It's the hope of, of the end of this battle. One of these days it's going to be over with. We have an eternal security in Yahweh. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Yahweh, Father, thank you for this um, sermon. 
Well, I don't know that I did it justice. And, and um, I don't know if you're glorified, but Father, I did my best, and and I love you, and I and I just wanna I just wanna honor you with my life. Father, I pray that you'll bless the ears that hear it and put put into their heart what you'd have me to say, even if I even if I didn't do it the way that you would have it done. And I'm so thankful for you. I give you honor and glory and, and praise. So thankful for your only begotten Son and all that He's done for us. Father, we lift him up today and ask these things in your holy son's name. Amen. Amen.